0: You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the most influential martyrs of Bloody Mary, John Bradford. As usual, when doing some of these guys that are a little bit less well known, or at least the time around them is a little bit less well known, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about Queen Mary and kind of her background and things, and some of the feelings that she had towards the Protestants that made her reign so bloody. She was the firstborn daughter of Henry VIII and his first wife Catherine of Aragon, and eventually her mother falls from favor because she's unable to have a son. And this is when Henry VIII, who's formerly Catholic, is looking for a way to. Get rid of his wife, put her away. And so he goes to Thomas Cranmer, who's a well known Protestant leader at the time, and he says, Hey, if I switch over to your side, can I get rid of my wife? And Thomas Cranmer is just happy to have some recognition of Protestantism, so he's like, Yeah, sure, that's fine. And so he officially divorces her, starts the Church of England, and Catherine is put away. Mary is removed from the line of secession, and she's unable to see her mother. Even when Catherine becomes really sick, She's still unable to see her, so her mother dies. Mary gets really, really bitter against her father. Now, after Henry VIII divorces his wife, Catherine, he marries Anne Boleyn, and he has Elizabeth I. Eventually, Anne Boleyn falls out of favor. She's beheaded, and Elizabeth I is also removed from the line of secession. Not long after this, Jane Seymour comes in the picture, and she tells Henry to put away petty nonsense and to put his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, back in the line of secession. But she's not around for very long when she dies in childbirth, giving birth to Philip VI. After Henry VIII dies, Philip VI takes the throne. He's super Protestant, he makes tons of reforms, he's a really good guy, but unfortunately he gets tuberculosis, and because he's panicked that Mary, being super Catholic, will undo everything that he has done, he writes Mary out of the line of secession. He does the same thing with Elizabeth, even though she's Protestant, so as to appear somewhat fair and equal. So instead of Mary, he puts in his cousin, Lady Jane Grey. And after his death, Mary and Elizabeth go to a Catholic stronghold. They take back the throne. Mary is made queen. This doesn't last very long at all. It's settled within a very short amount of time. And when she becomes the queen, she is very vindictive. She hates Protestants. And I think a lot of this stems from the fact that her father switched from the Catholic church, became a Protestant, dealt terribly with her mother, Thomas Cranber let it happen, So she has a personal vendetta against Protestants, and she's actually one of the first rulers to make it solely about religion. It's not necessarily a It's a political dissident thing. It is just a religious matter. Now, Burning Heretics wasn't particularly uncommon at the time, but Mary had a particularly cruel way of doing it. She would wet the wood, and generally dry wood was used and your lungs would be seared by smoke, quickly causing an almost instant death but wet wood caused victims to be slowly roasted and die very slowly and very painfully. She killed almost 300 Protestants this way in a two-year time frame, and that's where she earned her nickname, Bloody Mary. And that is all the relevant background information on Mary that you need to know, so we'll hop into John Bradford now. John Bradford was born in 1510 in Manchester, and he was really good at Latin and math, and he gets a position working for a noble who managed the finances of Henry VIII. And when he's not quite 40, he retires from that position and decides to study law at the Inner Temple, which is one of the so-called four inns of the Court of London. And in order to practice law in England, you had to—I'm not sure if this is still a thing, maybe it's still a thing—but you had to be a member of one of these four inns. And Wally's he's there, he's converted to Christ by a fellow student. And I looked into it to see if he had been Catholic before he became a Protestant, but it's not really clear— He refers to his upbringing as being good and virtuous, but his conversion seems to be so awe-inspiring and wholesome that I don't think he was a Catholic before this, at least not a devout one. He described himself before Christ as a thief, a blasphemer, an unclean liver, and a heinous offender of the laws of the realm. And he gives up all of his jewelry, his brooches, his jewels, his gold that he used to adorn himself with in vanity and used it to provide for the poor and the sick. And in 1548, he hears Hugh Latimer, and Hugh Latimer is a huge leader in the Protestant world. He's very influential, and he preaches before King Edward VI on the restitution of stolen goods, and John Bradford is cut to the quick. All those years earlier, he had been covering up the fraud of his former employer, the one who managed Henry VIII's finances, and he didn't partake any of the skimmed funds, but he had an immense amount of guilt for covering it up. So he convinces his old boss to confess to the king, and we don't know what happens after that. I don't think that he died. There seems to be some evidence that he lived after this, at least for a couple of years. He keeps studying law until later that year when he told a friend that he wanted to become a minister and study God's word. And so he goes to Cambridge, and within a year, he's invited to be a fellow at Pembroke Hall by Nicholas Ridley, who is another hugely influential person in the Reformation. John Bradford would later share a cell with both Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And while Bradford's at Cambridge, he's rubbing elbows with a lot of the people who become deeply influential during Elizabeth I's reign following the death of Mary, and I have to imagine that Bradford helped inspire them while he was there. It's also while he was at Cambridge that he got into the habit of recording God's dealings with him in a journal. When he was in public, he seemed oblivious of the presence of others and would sit in deep and prolonged silence. Sometimes his eyes would fill with tears. Sometimes his face was lit with smiles. He wept as well as for joy as for sorrow. At the same time, he would freely reprove any sin and misbehavior in any person, but with such divine grace and Christian majesty that he always stopped the mouths of the critics. When Nicholas Ridley becomes a bishop, he summoned Bradford to London and ordained him as one of the six royal chaplains, and this was a very high honor. And they are very similar to the circuit preachers in the U.S. because they would travel to remote places throughout the country. But that's the only thing they have in common. In the U.K., being a royal chaplain was a distinguished honor. It was well known that you had to have great character and sound doctrine and had excellent rapport with people. John Bradford had all of that in spades. Someone wrote of him, Indeed, he was a most holy and mortified man, who secretly in his closet would weep so for his sins, one would have thought he would never have smiled again. And then appearing in public, he would be so harmlessly pleasant, one would think that he had never wept before. On the other hand, circuit preachers in the U.S. were kind of your backburner preachers. It's not that they were bad, necessarily, but they really weren't that great, either. And a lot of men took a job on the circuit to cut their chops for the big leagues, and this may or may not have been successful, but that was the hope. And this is very different from the royal chaplaincy positions in the U.K. Bradford's circuit was in and around Lancashire, Cheshire, and in and around England. And everywhere he went, people loved him. They loved him because they knew how genuine he was and how much he cared for them. In fact, it wasn't just Protestants who loved him, Catholics loved him too, and they spent years, even after he'd been condemned to die, trying to convert him. And he was known as Holy Man Bradford. That sounds a little bit insulting to us today, and it would be taken as an insult today, but for him it was meant for high praise, and even his enemies called him that without a shred of mockery. And you have to remember, this is a time period that was rife with very pious and inspiring reformers, so it's very notable that he stood out even among them. Someone said of him, his passionate earnestness spared the sins of neither rich nor poor, while with bold single mindedness he rebuked the worldliness of courtiers. Bradford ripped in so deep to the insatiable greed of magistrates in taking bribes that they could not bear to hear him. In early 1553, Edward the VI contracted tuberculosis and was dying. He was hailed as the British Josiah. If you remember King Josiah, he was the last good king of Judah before they were taken into captivity. And he tore down all the altars to Baal and all the other false gods and restored the temple. And during his time as king, the law is found and read to Josiah and later to the people. And he is told that the promised judgment of God would be delayed because he had found favor in the sight of God and had followed the ways of David. And he walked with God and the people followed God for as long as he lived. Bradford likened the loss of Edward VI to Judah's loss of Josiah. And he preached in the court in the presence of the king. I summon you all, even every mother's child of you, to the judgment of God, for it is at hand. Shortly thereafter, the king dies. As I mentioned earlier, despite Edward's attempts to thwart Mary's ascension to the throne, she rides out with an army, and the palace military quickly switches sides over to her side, and she becomes the Queen of England in October of 1553. And she quickly squelches the instigators of the coup against her, and she turns her eyes to the leaders of the Reformation throughout England. Within a month, she gathers up Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley and John Bradford, and throws them into the Tower of London. You would be forgiven for thinking this was the only prison that England had at the time, but they had others. This was just where they housed the most notorious political dissidents, particularly under the Tudors in the 16th and 17th centuries. While he was in prison, Bradford wrote, I thank him more of this prison than of any parlor, yea, than of any pleasure that I've ever had, for in it I find God, my most sweet God always. He jubilantly exhorted others to die with Christ, to suffer fully for him, truly and according to his word. For sure may we be that of all deaths, it is most desired to die for God's sake. While he's in prison, he wrote two books, and his writings are compiled into two volumes entitled The Writings of John Bradford. You can get them on Amazon. I'm not sure if they're anywhere else out there, but if you want to grab them, that's one option. And it's during this time that he spent a number of months with Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley, and they enjoyed a great time of fellowship and provided much-needed encouragement for each other. In February of 1554, Queen Mary had Lady Jane Grey, who was also being housed in the Tower, beheaded. It told the others what was in store for them. Many of the prisoners who came to the Tower of London were eventually released, so there's a good reason to believe that they didn't necessarily think this was the end for them. In March, he was transferred to a different prison where he was allowed to preach twice a day and administer communion and he was also allowed out for parole at his own reconnaissance. He could have easily escaped, but he never tried, and instead ministered among the people and wrote several more books and letters. In November of 1554, the Heresy Acts were revived, and they were originally put in place to deal with a group of proto-Protestants over a 100 years before, and they had been repealed under Henry VIII and Edward VI, but Mary decided to revive them in order to legally execute the Protestants for heresy. Bradford was tried and convicted for his denial that Christ was physically present during the partaking of the Eucharist, and he was officially sentenced to death on the last day of January in 1555. He's held in London, where Catholic bishops tried earnestly for months to turn into Catholicism so that his life could be saved. They attempted right up until his execution. Bradford was informed of the day of his execution, the day before it was to happen. And when he was told, he took off his hat and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, I thank God for it. I have looked for the same a long time. And therefore it comes not to me suddenly, but as a thing waited for every day and hour. The Lord make me worthy of it. With that, he went upstairs to pray until they came to get him. He was scheduled to be burned at 4 a.m., although so many people came to see him off that it wasn't until another five hours later that he finally made it to the stake. A young man named John Leaf was also set to be burned with him, probably not much older than a teenager. A lady had given him a shirt of flame to put on. It was a clean, pure white shirt that was made to symbolize a bridegroom dressed for a wedding. He lifted up his hands and shouted, O England, England, repent of thy sins, repent thee of thy sins. He then turned to John Leaf and told him, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. One of Bradford's biographers remarks that between his ordination and martyrdom, Bradford ministered for only five years, two of which were spent in prison. Thus, he lived a long life in a short span of time. He adds Until the great day when the secrets of all hearts shall be revealed, it cannot be fully known to what extent England has been indebted to the labors and prayers of this devoted man. A couple of years later, a large number of Protestants are being tied to the stake. A messenger runs from the palace, yelling, Stop! The Queen is dead! Though she had signed their death warrants, she had to be alive in order to see them carried out, and Queen Mary had died of a the flu. There were many grateful Protestants that day. John Bradford didn't live just the golden age of Elizabeth I, but he influenced a great many of the Reformers who flourished during her reign. I want to give a huge shout out to Gina and Brandon for joining us on Patreon. Thank you guys so much. We couldn't do it without you. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Holy Man Bradford, and as always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.